Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to, the, to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, spring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. What did you want to be when you grew up? When you were growing up, what did you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a lot of different things throughout my life. Uh, I dressed up as a carpenter for Halloween when I was four wanted to be a carpenter, build things. Uh, I have a very distinct memory of when I was 13. I had followed a girl to church, uh, not literally, but kind of figuratively. There was a girl I was interested in going to the church. Literally would be a little bit more creepy um, if I literally had followed her to church. But I had started going to church because there was a girl I was interested in. She wasn't interested in me in return. And the rest of the story might help that make sense. Um, I remember distinctly, all I did was go to Sunday school there at the beginning. Um, I had not been to church much growing up. I had gone some. My family took me on occasion, but I started going seriously at that point. And I remember my Sunday school teacher, I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was something like, none of us know what we're going to be doing later in life. You guys don't really know that yet. You're middle schoolers. You're 13 years old. And I, and I just said, I do. I know what I'm going to be doing. She said, oh, you do? I said, yeah, I'm going to be a rock star. Little did I know that that requires something that I don't have, which is rhythm. 
I have none of that. And so therefore, uh, it didn't work out quite the way I was confident that it would. When I was 16, I decided I wanted to be a pastor. And I'm sure that my family was just waiting for that phase to to go by as well uh, as the rock star phase. But here I am. Some might still be wondering that. So how about you? What did you want to be when you grew up? Some of us wanted to be a a musician. Some of us wanted to be a famous athlete. Some of us just wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. Whatever it is, it's something with money, right? Most of us want to be something that's rich when we get older. That's, That's what we think about. We're ambitious people here. Boston's a very ambitious city. If you moved here from another city, which you know a lot of people do, it means that you are probably one of the most ambitious people of your hometown. It means you had a vision for your life, and you wanted to move forward with that. And Boston's a place that people that are successful move. It's where people who are intelligent move. And if you are from here, it's probably because someone in your family history had that same vision. They wanted to seek a better life. They were ambitious. They said, let's do this. Let's move to Boston. Rarely do people get into this place without any sort of ambition. But friends, our ambition is killing us. We're more stressed out and depressed than ever before in the history of human civilization. In chasing our dreams, we've completely neglected the hidden person of the heart. John Mark Comer wrote a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Uh, Megan and I both read that book, and it kind of started a personal spiritual renewal with us each, about a year, about a year apart from one another. And uh, he tells this, this story about a cardiologist named Meyer Friedman. And he was a cardiologist who theorized that type A people who are chronically angry and in a hurry, are more prone to heart attacks. He defined a new illness. It's called hurry sickness. Listen to how he defined this illness. He said, this is a continuous struggle and remitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Whose life does that not describe? That just describes life for our modern civilization. We want to get more and more things, go to more and more things in less and less time. Meyer Friedman lived in the 50s when he wrote this. So much has not changed. How many of us suffer from hurry sickness? The scriptures teach us that our ambitions reveal our affections. Let me say that again. Your ambitions reveal your affections. The things you want to accomplish show what you think is important in life. Your ambitions reveal your affections. Let me put that a different way. Your pursuits reveal your prize. The things you pursue reveal what is your prize in life. Your pursuits reveal your prize. John Ortberg says it like this, Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. 
hurry is a disordered heart. We all want to leave a legacy. We all want to be remembered. We want to be great. And friends, there's nothing wrong with that. God has wired us that way. We have this wiring for glory in our hearts. We want to be great. We want to leave that legacy. And that is good. But here's the place where we always get thrown off. We always forget that God's ambition is greater than our own. That God's plans are bigger than our plans. And that we're just part of His plan. And His ambition far exceeds our wildest dreams. Your greatest plans pale in comparison to what God has planned for you and for His church and for the world. Today we get to look at King David's ambition. Uh, David was an ambitious dude. He started off as a servant boy, as, an, as a shepherd boy, excuse me. As a shepherd boy, just tending to the sheep, he ended up becoming a, a giant slayer, a, a great warrior, and now king. And as we look at David's ambition, I want us to look at it in three different steps. First, the minuscule ambition of David. It seems large, but it's really minuscule. The enormous ambition of God. And lastly, the only appropriate response. The minuscule ambition of, of David, the enormous ambition of God, and lastly, the, the only appropriate response to God's ambition. So let's jump in this. Number one, uh, the minuscule ambition of David. Let's start at verse one. I'm going to reread these first three verses. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look with me here. Uh, Verse one, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Now that's hilarious what happened here. You might not pick up on it, but what's happening is hilarious. Let me explain it. David has arrived. He's finally made it. He's sitting on his throne, okay? This entire, all this story we've been looking at like six weeks, seven weeks of of David, just now David has arrived. He's sitting on his throne. Uh, his, His enemies are defeated. The ark of the Lord is back in the city of God. He's He's arrived, and so he's looking around, and he's like, well, what do I do now? What do you do once you get to the top? It's like catching a squirrel. What are you going to do once you catch it? And so he says, I'm sitting here in a palace. The Ark of the Covenant's out there in a tent, in the tabernacle. That's where it had been since the the beginning. Once they first created it, they made this special tabernacle. There was no temple for the presence of God, but it was in A tent outside. So David says, well, isn't that curious? And he calls in Nathan. He says, hey, Nathan, see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark dwells in a tent. Nathan says, say no more. You're a rich man. I see where this is going. Go and do all that your heart desires. You see, it's funny because he does. David doesn't even say, I want to build a house for God. David just says, he makes an observation. I'm living in this palace. God's living in a tent. And Nathan does what any pastor would do if a rich person walks in and says, hey, I've got a Brinks truck full of, uh, of money. Your church looks like it could use it. 
Go and do everything that's in your heart, is what he says. You see, pastors love moments like these. Not only for the money, because that's not really what it's about, but because David is saying, what can I do for God? It's a good ambition in a lot of ways. Pastors are very used to people wanting things from God. They're not so used to people saying, what can I give back to God? What can I do for God? And in this situation, many pastors, in their excitement, don't really pause to consider the heart ambition of the person who is trying to do something for God. And Nathan probably should have done that. But he went home that night, and God spoke to Nathan at home, and he rescinded the building permit for David. Uh, Nathan had to go and tell David, hey, God doesn't want you to build him a house. God doesn't want you to build him a temple. Why do you think David wanted to build that great house for God? It's a good thing to consider. Why do you think he wanted to do this? Was he just bored? Maybe he was looking around at the other nations and saying the other nations have a temple for their gods. Maybe he had read about or heard about uh, the Pharaoh uh, Tutmos who built a temple for their god in Egypt named Amun-Ra. And in return, Amun-Ra said, Tutmose III, since you've built my dwelling place, I will establish your throne into distant days. You see, he, he did something for God, and God did something back for him. And so maybe David was looking over and saying, how do I stay on top? I know, I'll build a temple for God, and he'll pay me back. It's like a quid pro quo with God. I do something for you, you do something for me. One concept that comes up all the time in the Bible is that Israel's God, Yahweh, is not like the other gods. Though. This is something that's very countercultural to 2021 Somerville, Boston, because many people that we are surrounded with believe that all religions are kind of leading to the same place. That it's all just different paths to the same God. You see those bumper stickers that say coexist. And the assumption behind those is all of these different religions lead to the same God. But what the Bible teaches us over and over again is that all religions do not lead to the same God. But our God is one to be worshipped and praised above all other gods. He does not function like the other gods. We can't assume that you get to the same God through different ways. Not all religions are the same. Other gods of other religions say, you do something great for me, I'll do something great for you. And sometimes Christianity can be twisted to say this. Sometimes pastors, especially televangelists, can say, you give money to the church, God will bless you in this way. You do something for God, God will do something back for you. But that is not the God of the Bible. That is a, a fictional Jesus that we like to create to serve our own means. No, the God of the Bible is a God of grace and one who does not need us in any way. He is completely uh, uh, separated from us. He's completely independent of us, though he longs to have a relationship and to show his love to us. One way 
that our God is different from other so-called gods is that you cannot earn his favor. You cannot earn it. This would feel so much easier and more straightforward. It's always a temptation to feel like you can earn it, but you cannot. So what was causing David to want to build the the house of God? Eugene Peterson's insight here is really helpful. I love what he says. He says, do you know what I think? I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David, riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people, and captured the allegiance of all Israel. He was heavy with success, and he'd begun to think he could do do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. There's probably a small part of David that said, If I build God a house, if I build a temple, people will recognize me for it. I'll be the one who built God a temple. Friends, why do you do the things that you do? Consider your ambitions. If you're a Christian here today, the Bible says that everything you do must be for the glory of God. Everything you do is for the glory of God. But yet, we'll often make our, our spiritual, we'll often make spiritual sacrifices to feed our own ambition. Friends, if you're looking at an opportunity in front of you, and it looks amazing for you, but it's not going to allow you to develop into a more kind, compassionate person, more made in the image of God, is it for God's glory or is it for your own glory? Have you ever taken personal ambition and baptized it in the name of Jesus? I've heard a few people do this. One person I was talking to said, I want to be be rich. That's my only ambition in life is to be rich. And that way I can just give money away and do whatever the church needs. But at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure that person just wanted to be rich. And they were trying to baptize it in the name of Jesus. When I was in seminary, There were all kinds of guys that wanted to plant these really amazing churches. And it's amazing how many guys God had called to plant megachurches in seminary. It's amazing. It's like every other person. It's going to be the greatest church ever. It's going to be this megachurch. It's like, does God ever call people to just pastor normal, small churches? Because it seems like it might be a little bit more about you than it is about God in that situation. Why is it that people feel called to do things that make them look great, feel like God is calling them in that way? Friends, let me make this really simple to you. Many of the things that God calls you to do will make you feel uncomfortable and look silly. That's the plight of Christianity. It's over and over again in the scripture. The Bible says that you need to share your faith We have a good news, a message to proclaim. It's going to make you feel uncomfortable. But guys, that's the calling of God. And no matter what else he's called you to, that is certain that he has called you to spread his gospel among all people throughout the entire world. That he's called you to be faithful in that way. 
to push for the message of Jesus. So David has this ambition that seems noble on the outside, but, but God says no. Now, why does God say no? And I think that this is really important. It's because God's ambitions are greater than David's ambitions. God's ambitions are greater than David's ambitions. The enormous ambition of God. God has bigger plans for David than what David has. Friends, God has bigger plans for you than what you have. Let that sit in, soak in for just a minute. God has bigger plans for you. Let me share it with you. After his encounter with David, Nathan goes home and he hears from God. The first thing he hears God say is also funny. This passage has all kinds of jokes. As Alexa was reading it, I was laughing over here. And you might be like, well, that's so irreverent. Why are you laughing? It's because God's kind of funny in this passage. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Ha! David's being, uh, God's being sarcastic. See? Sarcasm right there in the Bible. Why haven't you built a house for me? No! He didn't ask him to do that. God never asked David to build him a house. And then God gives Nathan this vision for David. And it's so much better than David's vision for himself. And it's this fun turn of phrase, and this is what this whole passage leans on, is David says, I want to build a house for you, and God says, you build a house for me? No, I'm going to build a house for you. You see, when David says, I want to build God a house, he's talking about a temple, but when God says, I'm going to build your house, David, he's talking about a legacy, a dynasty. He's going to build a, a, uh, a family, a dynasty. This whole promise, verses like 9 through 17, so amazing here, 9 through 16. I just want to walk through a few of the things that God promises David. And then God just goes through this long list of promises. All the different ways that God's going to promise to, to bless him. Check it out. Verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and, and will plant them. Verse 11, and I will give you rest from all your enemies second half of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. Verse 12, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And later, I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be, a, be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes so many promises. God promises to give him a place. God promises to establish his reign through his family forever. God promises to give him rest and peace. God's plans are better than David's own plans. David said, I just wanted to build you a house. God says, oh, I'm going to build you a house, and it's so much better than the house that you thought that you could build for me. 
How many times do we just get caught up? And friends, I do this all the time. I've been doing it this week. I'm preaching to myself so much. I want to build God's house. I want to build his church. And God's like, I'm going to build your house. You don't worry about my house. I'm going to build up my kingdom. It belongs to me. Notice all the things that David has to bring to the table with all of this. In this passage, God says, I will, eight times. How many times does he say, you will? I'll do this, I will do this, I will do this, and you will, David. None. He doesn't say it. It's all on God. Every other religion says, I will build you a house, then God blesses. But Christianity is the only religion where it says that God builds us a house and we really don't do anything. It's a religion based on grace. This promise that he's making, he's repeating a lot of the same promises that he had made to Abraham before David. And really, David is the culmination of many of these promises for Abraham because Abraham was promised that he would have a great family and that kings would come from him. And here he is, David, the son of Abraham, a king coming from Abraham. David is the fulfillment of many of the promises made to Abraham in Genesis 17. But now he's upping the ante. And he's not only saying that you're going to have kings come from you, but those kings are going to last forever. And here's the thing about this verse, this this chapter. Some biblical scholars like Walter Brueggemann say that this is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. Because you get to the end of the Old Testament and it looks like God has failed on every one of his promises. Because you get to the end of the Old Testament and what's been happening? They've been taken out of their place. There's no more Davidic king. There's no more son of David ruling and reigning. All these promises seem null and void. And the people are like, where is God? The Old Testament ends with a 400 year uh, period of silence. Just 400 years after uh, David, the whole thing fell down and, and they got taken into exile. And then they were there for few few years came back rebuilt some but then we have a 400 year period another one of silence and then a thousand years total after God's promise to David an angel appears to a young woman in the same town where David was born in Bethlehem and the angel appears and he says Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Wasn't that one of God's promises? That I will be to him as a father and he will be my son. He will be called to me. He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give, him a throne, will give him the throne of who? His father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Is the direct fulfillment of what God is promising David in 2 Samuel 7. Friends, Jesus is literally a descendant of David. The first words of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, 
It says it like this. The book of the genealogy, I know that's the most exciting part of your Bible, the genealogies, they are really actually very fascinating and helpful, this one in particular. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what does the genealogy do? Then it traces it, uh, Jesus' line from Jesus back to David in 14 steps. And then from David back to Abraham in 14 steps. So there's 14 generations in between each that they list. And when you take the word David and add up the Hebrew symbols, I'm not exaggerating this, this is something they did, the, the number there is 14. The D plus the V plus the D, 14. It's emphasizing David, David, David. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. He's literally the descendant of David. Death did not stop his reign. He literally rose from the dead. He is the king and he is the sacrificial lamb. He paid the debt of sin so that we can live in his kingdom. Friends, and here's, here's the amazing part of this. When you place your hope and trust in Christ, these promises made to David, you become a participant in them. You become a participant in the family of David. You become a child of God as well. You see, the ambitions for your life are far smaller than God's ambitions for your life. As members of the kingdom of God, you don't have to worry about hoarding things on earth. You have an eternal inheritance. You've been given a place. You've been given a place on earth that you will rule and reign alongside with God, that you will sit on his throne and you'll have the whole world to explore. One thing that kind of grinds my gears, and I kind of understand why, when people say it, but they say, I want to see this place before I die. I really want to see Hawaii before I die. As if you will not get an opportunity to explore God's creation and the new creation after you die. God is going to give us these honors of eternal life where we live and explore new creation. We get to live with Him forever. He is in the process of remaking the world. And we get to join him in that. One thing before we end here, and, and this, is the, this is a really short point, the only appropriate response to this promise. God makes this huge promise. And I just want to, we didn't read this earlier, but I want to draw your attention to it. Verse 18, look at it with me. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you've brought me thus far? You see, friends, when, when you understand the promises of God made to you and the plans of God that he has for you, your attitude goes from what about me to who am I? Who am I that you would think of me in this way? Who am I that you would give me all of this grace God takes us from people who say, who say, establish my house, make me great. We go from people who are so personally ambitious and he turns us into people who say, who am I, God, that you would use me? Whatever you want in my life is fine. Whatever you want. Church, how does God want to use you? How can you join in the mission of God? How can you be used in his kingdom building? What does he want you to do? And what does he want to do in you? How is he changing you? Who are you becoming? Who are you 
like today that you weren't like yesterday? Who are you becoming? Let's take those things that God has given to us and let's take those to God as we receive a meal. And let's go to him as we receive this sacred meal and say, here I am, God. Use me however you want, however you please. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, Luke chapter 22, verse 19. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after he had eaten, saying, this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. This is one of the ways that Jesus makes a promise to us, that he has spilled his blood for us. He's made a covenant with us. Um, if you are a believer here today, I encourage you to receive this meal. Be reminded of what Christ has done, that he's paid for your, your sin, that he is the risen king, that he is the son of David that will reign eternally forever. And that if we place our hope and our trust in him, it's not enough to just say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he was a real person. You have to trust him with your life. You have to believe on him. And if we do that, we get to join in in those eternal promises and get to live forever with him. It's the promise of eternal life. And let's give him our ambitions this morning and say, however you want to use me, I'm for your kingdom. That's what I'm for. So let's, let's stand and respond to, to Christ our King. God, as we come to you with a sacred meal, may our hearts be prepared to, to worship you as our King and give you all of our ambitions and know that the plans that you have for us are better than any plans that we can put together, that your promises are greater, that your dreams are far wilder than ours, and that you're doing things in us that we cannot see to make us become more like you. And God, that is what all of us want here, is to be more like you. And we pray that you will send us on a mission to help others to become these gospel good news people. Help us to respond with all of our heart and soul today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.